All right, welcome to Planetary Health First, Mars Next. And it is a special, amazing day today. We have Jake here and he is no stranger to healthcare and he's no stranger to uh, uh, being an entrepreneur. And uh, he was a co-founder of PAPA, which is still going on today. And it was really intrinsically motivated by his own experience. Uh, Papa was his granddad and Papa, his granddad needed care. And the model of care just wasn't working. No, there wasn't a way to get care, uh, uh, you know, when you need it right on the, um, the, just the model was challenging. And so that led him to uh, create Papa, which most people know today. Um, and uh, second time around, his other grand, his grandmother, Margarita, was having issues and challenges with the right place, the right housing, which a lot of us, I can say I've, I've been challenged myself. So I'm super excited that you were took the challenge to to not to make a scalable company upside. Um, and you are the founder and CEO of Upside. And it's really housing for health. And so go ahead and, and uh, share a little more about yourself and really look forward to diving into this topic, Jake. Uh, thank you for the very kind and thorough intro, Michael. It's really good to be here. Um, yeah, you hit the nail on the head, right? We started Papa based on a personal family need. My grandfather, Joseph, um, had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. My grandmother, Margarita, was caring for him, was trying to care for him. And it was it worked out for a few years where she could do it, but at some point she started needing some help. And so she'd call her grandchildren, uh, me and my cousin Andrew, she'd call and and with a simple request, hey, can you come just sit with your grandfather for you know for an hour or two here? Because she was very mobile and active. And so her friends would call her, her girlfriends would call her and say, hey, meet me at Starbucks in a half an hour for a half an hour. And she really, unless we were available, she was really unable to do that. And so I remember sitting with my grandfather one day and calling a few home care agencies with a, that simple request. Hey, can you come, can you send a caregiver? It doesn't even need to be a caregiver, just someone to sit with my grandfather to keep him company and to make sure he stayed safe for an hour here and an hour there. And of the five places I called, all five of them basically laughed me off the phone and they're like, no, that's not how we work. And our caregivers need a minimum of 20 hours a week and need to be on a set schedule. And I'm like, this is 2015, 2016. Everyone was talking about Uberizing everything. And I'm like, how is this possible that you can't get someone in today's day and age where you can order a cab in front of your house in five minutes, you can't get someone to help care for and provide some companionship and, and assistance for an older person. Um, and this kind of surrounded the rhetoric around 10,000 people a day turning 65. This was back then. Now it's 12,000 or maybe 13,000. Now at this point, turning 65 every day in the U.S. And so we really thought we, you know, we were onto something here. There's nobody doing this. And I was recently out of school and, um, and realized that there's 20 million college students that were probably in need of some extra, you know, some extra flexible part-time work. And so that was the sort of the formation of Papa. Let's partner these 20 million college students in the U.S. with the older adults and their families that really needed some extra companionship and assistance. And so as that business grew and um, we learned a lot about the healthcare industry, uh, started seeing problems now with my grandmother. So a couple, fast forward a couple of years, my grandmother moved my grandfather into a traditional senior living facility, a memory care facility specifically because he had cognitive decline. And um, these were unexpected things, right? This was a trigger, what we now call a trigger event that caused uh, my grandfather, my grandmother to have to now spend a lot of her life savings paying for this 
very expensive facility for my grandfather to live in because he was in that care. She could physically no longer care for him anymore at 87 years old. And so now for the first time in her adult life, my grandmother at 87 was alone, for the completely alone and without anybody to help her do stuff. She was living in this big two-story house and it had stairs and uh, she had recently had knee replacement surgery um, and so she couldn't navigate the house. She couldn't really afford the house to stay there anymore. She had owned it outright. And so the family got together and were like, we got to sell the house because she's blowing through her retirement savings just to keep my grandfather in this community, in this senior living community. And so we got together, we sold the house, we moved her into an apartment in this, a rental in the same neighborhood that she knew and loved. And that apartment was near her doctors and near her grandkids and near her friends. And then I, as the grandson that was the closest, acted as the person that sort of helped her out with all the things that she needed help with. She needed help paying the rent. She needed help going to the grocery store. She needed help getting to her doctor's appointments. She used to come to our house on Friday nights for dinner. She didn't like driving at night, so I picked her up and dropped her back off. And so we realized pretty quickly that, oh, my God, people like my grandmother, she doesn't need care, but she definitely needs some extra level of support. And she needs that level of support in a, an environment that's more conducive to a single 87-year-old woman. And so that was the kind of the impetus for starting Upside. We said 90%, we started researching and realized that 90% of people say they want to age in place. But we go, well, that's interesting because my grandmother said she wanted to age in place as well, but realized based on this trigger event, that in her case was moving my grandfather into senior living, could no longer do that sustainably or realistically. Um, and so we were like, okay, there's of those 90% of people that stay in place, most probably can't. And at some point along the aging journey, have a trigger event that happens to them where they physically can't do that or financially or emotionally or whatever it might be. Uh, and that's how we started upside under that premise. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, uh, so we thank you, Jake, for being that good grandson that, that being there. And then thank you, Margarita. And uh, what you're talking about is these concepts that we gather out there that don't really mean much. Aging in place. Like, really, what does it mean? Well, it means nothing until you try to actualize it. And so I feel like, um, you know, I, I, I can totally relate to you um, with my 85-year-old mother, my 91-year-old father, who's now in hospice, which is the best thing. And I just say that just to just to bring awareness to anyone and everyone, but, um, and he has dementia. Um, but that was a journey trying to get them to downsize. So we we were able to do that, but man, that was a come to Jesus, whatever you want to use the term, the whole family meeting, where are we going to do? My parents had a three-story house mm -hmm. and it just, it was, we're going to require so much to, you just couldn't transition. So aging in place, the best thing was to move. And that doesn't mean like you're aging like, I think we need to reframe the conversation. I really appreciate that you're actually doing that. So it's a really good point. Uh, and I think that it's overlooked often because you see the media headlines, aging in place, aging in place, everyone wants to age in place. Um, but it's it's vapid, it's empty. It, that doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't ring through from 99% of people uh, for one of these reasons. We've categorized them into what we call the five Ds, death of a spouse, downside, the need to downsize, divorce, which is happening more frequently in older people, um, uh, disaster and disability. And so like these things happen. They happen as you get eight, as you get older and they happen with more frequency as you get older. 
and they cause the need for someone to actually have to make a move. And it's not because they're moving to a senior living facility necessarily. Only 10% of the population ever winds up in a traditional facility-based senior living environment. But 90% of people are winding up somewhere different than they raised in than the house that they raised their kids in. And so we are framing the argument not in around the concept of aging in place, but aging in the right place. And I think that that is really more broadly covers um, the sentiment that that's actually happening in the industry and in the market and around people's wants and needs. So when you think about aging in the right place, it's okay, someone like my grandmother, Margarita, she is definitely not going to be moving into a senior living community. She died actually in her apartment, in her rental apartment, happily. She wasn't happy to do it, but she did it. That's where she want, That's She indicated to us that's where she wanted to die, not in a facility uh, or in a hospital. And so you know, allowing people or giving people the tools that they need to better to, to better make the decisions about where they should be and what's the safest and most sustainable place for them to be and getting the support that they need in those places and allowing them to make that decision on their own. So I think a lot of times you mentioned with your own parents, I think a lot of times the conversation is approached and mom, you got to do this. You got to get out of this house. Mm -hmm. um, and Here's the, here's the facility that I found for you. And I think that a lot of times that's not taken well by, by older mm -hmm. people. And, there, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the main reasons is that older people need a sense to maintain their sense of independence, as they should. They've been independent for their whole lives. And now, it, just because they're 90 doesn't mean they shouldn't have some sense of independence or some sense that they're making or a part of making the decision that will impact their life um, for the remainder of it. And so what we do is we really provide optionality for people allow older adults and their families to make a decision based on a few different good decisions that will ultimately make them safer healthier better and you know improve their quality of life and so optionality as we've found is very very important in, in fostering those important and difficult discussions almost feel like interventions in many cases um, and a lot of times having a third party to do that is very helpful versus the family member that mm -hmm. you know that is sort of in it that can't yeah, I wish you would have been with us. I mean, luckily we were able to do it, um, but we had like two choices that didn't really need to be just two choices. Um, it was either the senior living community that was a really nice one, but my gosh, it's the amount, and, and I don't want to throw out numbers, but like literally it was like, let's just say a million dollars to buy yeah. it. And then it was still 800, eight, excuse me, 8,000 or something a month based on whether you, you use it or lose it. And it's just like, are you kidding me? So that's just not an, I mean, that could have been, but then there was, and, and so they ended up being in, in not a senior living community per se, but it was a senior friendly community. And, and it's the, been the perfect choice, but man, if we had upside health where we could just push the button, you know, and get your solutions and access to that, um, that would have been really helpful. And, uh, so I'm so glad you're doing this. And now uh, you're at the point where I think we, when we were talking earlier is that you're really working with health plans to give their members that option because health, um, you know, is uh, really dependent on housing. As you said, housing for health. Can you share a little more about how, how you're kind of getting yourself uh, out there with the health plans and sort of letting people know about your solutions? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So uh, we started this whole thing um, direct to consumer. We said, okay, well, we got to go get a bunch of people 
we curated apartments, we built a network of vet apartments that we vetted, that we took them through 180 point inspection to make sure that they satisfied and met the strict safety standards that we held ourselves to in terms of their ability to be safe and accessible and um, good places to live for older adults. And so we, we have now a network of apartment communities nationwide um, that is that we're, that are in our partner network. And so we know we can place older adults in these places safely. And so we started direct to consumer. We started placing people all over the country in our units with this extra layer of support. And what we realized a couple of years ago was, wow, we can make an even bigger impact if we work with health plans um, to serve a lot of members uh, all at once uh, and get them into the appropriate environments. Uh, realizing that if a older person, and now we're finding younger people, that people are, means, if we can get them into an appropriate environment, we can reduce uh, health risks, we can reduce falls, we can reduce emergency department visits, we can improve care costs. Mm -hmm. And so that, under that premise, we said, okay, well, how, how can we serve health plans and their members best? Mm -hmm. And what we landed on and what we're working with payers on is a national housing stability type of program, national or regional. I mean, we're mm -hmm. nationally capable of delivering our services nationally. Um, some of the health plans that we work with are smaller regional plans, and we have a footprint in all of the you know, all the areas that we operate with with them. Um, but the idea is to help plans either identify or if they have members that they've already identified with housing stability, get them onboarded and enrolled into our program, and then help them find the appropriate uh, mm -hmm. the appropriate place and get them stabilized. Because a person in stable housing is a person that's going to be healthier and, and cost the health plan less and live a better quality of life. Yeah, it is amazing when you have it designed out. And I'm sure you have with these, you know, you work with a DME company. And, I, I, I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm using my dad's situation. But the fact that we have right across the hallway now his, his restroom, he's got the three-in-one three, three in one commode or the raised toilet seat, whatever you want to say, the grab bars. He's got his uh, walker right next to his bed and he's able to get himself up. And that alone, I mean, it's literally probably like 12 feet that he needs to go to get to the restroom, which was not the case in his original house. Mm -hmm. And then the life, like these are so like, and I know you automate this and you make it all part of the process, but like a shower bench, my dad at a certain point was not able to communicate uh, and had too much pride and dignity, uh, or or maybe his dementia was a problem that he was so afraid of getting in the shower or falling, and that shower bench alone. So I imagine as part of your package or part of your program, you kind of wrap those things in as well, right? Yeah, we get people what they need, uh, and it's based on real conversations with real people and their family members. And I think that one of the things that's been lacking in the industry is having humanizing conversations with people uh, around their needs. Uh, one of the things that health plans do really well is they survey and they assess and they try and understand the the kind of the situations of their members. And, you know, in, in a formal survey type of setting, a lot of times members won't divulge all the information about what's going on in their lives uh, or about what's impacting them. But in the context of a normal conversation of Hey, Michael, what's going on? You turned 83 last week. Happy birthday, first of all. And second of all, what's going on in your house? Like, are you happy? Are you happy living there? Do you see yourself staying there for a little bit longer? I, you know, tell me about your kids. Your, your daughter lives nearby or she's across the country. Would you be, you think you'd be happier living close by to her? 
having a converse, a real human conversation, we are able to collect so much more information about holistically about the person. Uh, and so when you talk about whole person health and you talk about um, really understanding the the member at the core of the you know of the conversation, beginning the conversations around housing enables us to expose and to understand so much more about the member, about the human, about the individual. What is it? Tell me what what you're doing about cooking. Do you cook? Do you eat? Are you eating healthfully? Um, are you close to your primary care doctor? So things like all the other social driver of health type services, access to healthcare, transportation, food security. These are things that are happening naturally in our conversations with members because we're starting the, the conversation around housing. Health plans don't a lot of times have the capacity to do this. And certainly they don't have the expertise in-house in many cases to um, navigate people around those types of conversations. And that's where we're finding a lot of success. I see what I think of what you're talking about is trust, a huge amplification of trust based on this optionality that you're talking about, optimizing. It's not about directing. Um, so I think uh, what you're really doing is you're helping on autonomy, agency, and that dignity for these older adults. And then you're empowering them by giving them the right choices, you know, in a conversational way, like you're knowing them. And, uh, and, um, so I, 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 I really, um, I, I'd love to know how more of how that process kind of came about. Cause you just don't like, what was the design thinking? Like, what were some of the stumbles? Can you tell me about kind of how you've come about that? What works or what? Yeah, sure. So, and there's, we've stumbled plenty um, getting to this point and trying to learn and understand uh, about what works and what doesn't work. Uh, I think at the core though, and we've come to this, you know, relatively recently, this concept of humanizing healthcare and using housing to do that. So humanizing healthcare through housing um, has been really the kind of the key turning point for us. Once we realized we can have real conversations around housing, um, that was really where we said it, it was like a light bulb moment. Like, okay, we can do this and we can do this better than anybody else. We can use our curated network of housing that we've already built to facilitate, um, the, you know, providing stability for people across the age spectrum, across the financial spectrum and across the health spectrum. Um, you know, we didn't realize the power of that until, you know, until not too long ago. So where we stumbled was getting it, you know, getting into it with a lot of health plans in terms of, okay, well, hey, you think you know uh, who, which of your members are housing insecure. Um, why, don't you, why don't you start with those? And then we really kind of learned, okay, well, maybe we don't really know which members are housing insecure because they're not sharing a lot of times that information with a case manager or with uh, their health plan directly. So things like that, where the, the modes and methods of engagement and the way we engaged, um, I think we've learned a lot since just doing it and rolling our sleeves up and working in the, you know, in the industry with big payers and with members themselves. Um, and so now we have a very repeatable process. Now it's different for every plan, right? Like every, you talk to 10 health plans and you're going to get 10 different sort of um, ways that they'll want to design a benefit or design a program. And so I think that there's cust certainly customization that happens uh, at the plan by plan level. But overall, we've got the framework now in place to be able to say, okay, 
You have known, you have populations that are known, have known housing issues. You have populations that have unknown housing issues. We know how to deal with those. We can run outbound on those and plan in, you know, engagement and enrollment on those. And on the ones that you know, they, that come through your care management teams, we can plug into your care management teams and receive referrals that way. So we can work in a variety of different methods with a health plan, and we do. Um, and so I think that sort of just learning how to how to interact and engage uh, with these different types of groups has been the biggest, one of the biggest challenges, I'd say. So where are you right now as a company and your vision and your mission upside, how, upside, excuse me, where are you this moment in time? Um, so we're working with health plans around the country now. The idea is to grow that and to increase our impact uh, nationally and maybe even internationally. Uh, and, I, you know, the, the idea is to help as many people as possible find housing stability and improve health outcomes. That's really where what we're after. And I, I think that the journey is long ahead of us because the problems are so deep and so big. Um, so we're just, you know, from my perspective, we're just getting started. Mm -hmm. um, we've got, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people that we've helped already, but that's a speck compared to the amount of people that need our help uh, and, the, and the people that we can. So what is your big goal for 2024? I think, you know, more holistically, I think that we want to prove to the world that what we're doing and the way we're tackling this problem and the challenges around housing is the way that's going to help uh, a lot of people. Uh, and it, it does more. And it's not just about housing. I think that this is a, there's a big element of this that goes overlooked. Uh, it's about meaningful engagement. And what you said, you, you hit the nail on the head really early on here is trust. How can you build engaging, meaningful interactions with people, with humans, whether they're a member of a health plan or Grandma Beverly in her apartment at 87 years old by herself or Margarita? How do you build? Hey, that's that? my mom's name, Beverly. No way. Okay. Of <laughs> um, that generation, so there's a lot of Beverlys in that generation. Um, the building trust is really critical, mm -hmm. and so you know, 2024 for us and beyond is how do we build trust with members? How do we build trust with organizations that help to manage the care of members how do we build trust and i think that that's really the biggest that's the biggest hurdle that i think any organization dealing with older adults um is challenged with so as a ceo founder of your organization what are you doing to listen to your customer that customer delight from obviously you have multiple stakeholders a customer is a health plan is different than grandma beverly right um so how do you do that and balance that a lot of listening. I mean, I spend a lot of my day listening. I get on uh, our case management review calls with all of our different health plan clients. Um, I'm seeing re reviews and we, you know, we do surveying of our members as well, analyzing those, understanding and talking to customers, talking mm -hmm. to members, talking to customers, talking to residents. Like, I'm making sure to put myself in front of the people that are actually receiving the help from us so that we can really be at the, at the Mm -hmm. face of the problem like how how are we actually solving these problems so that we can then relay the message up and relay the message down i, I think it's really really important to, uh, to keep that you, that's a common theme i don't think i'm the only yeah. ceo that does and, that and what is the biggest thing like blaring that you like were like wow that that just blew me away what what is something that just stood out that you couldn't believe that you're like wow that's really interesting um there's a lot on a daily basis that happens mm -hmm. um but i think that one of the most interesting things and the most sort of surprising things that our thesis around having conversations around housing that would allow us to have these conversations more broadly around other social drivers of health 
that's actually happening. We mm -hmm. came into this saying, okay, we've got a lot of experience with consumers um, and we've sort of, they've opened up to us. We, they came to us because they needed a place to live, but now we help them uh, get their doctors and we help them find food and we help them get transportation and we help them do all these things. So we had a thesis about that translating from the consumer side to the health plan side. Now we're actually seeing it come to fruition on the health plan side as well. Mm -hmm. so health plans were skeptical. And they're like, okay, we have a great case management. We have a great case management team that's trained, literally trained to uh, to try and elicit this information from members so that they, we can better serve them. But we're struggling to do it. You're saying that you can use housing as a mechanism for engagement, but I don't know. Let's prove that out. And so mm -hmm. now we're actually doing that, and we're really blowing the doors off um, kind of the preconceived notion that health plans had in relation to their relationship with their members. Uh, and I think that's been the most, I think that's been the most satisfying thing that's yeah. happened lately where we're like, we're really onto something. here. Well, I think there's a lot of upside to upside, right? It sounds like there could be some other benefits and features. It's not just about housing, really. It's a lot yeah. more, way it more, right? With housing. It's, it's very, when you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You have housing and food and shelter at the bottom, but housing is so fundamental. It's so core to someone's health and general well-being like if you don't have an appropriate house or roof over your head mm -hmm. you're not thinking about going to your primary care doctor you're not thinking about proper nutrition you're not thinking about transportation you're thinking about how where am i going to sleep tomorrow mm -hmm. uh and you know when we think about another thing that's interesting is as we dive into this we think about um kind of standard definitions around things right homelessness when you think mm -hmm. of homelessness you think of people living on the streets uh, and so did I. And I think that's a that's a very big problem. There's no question about that. That's a very big problem. And it costs the healthcare system a lot of money to have people that are homeless. But what you don't think about is acute homelessness or temporary homelessness or near homelessness. People like 87 year old whoever mm. that had her rent raised on her uh, by 30 percent this year because of a post COVID world that we live in that now can't afford to live in her on a fixed, very fixed income. She's living on social security income and maybe a little bit of money from a 401k or whatever mm -hmm. now can't afford her rent. And so she's living in the back of her Camry. And mm. you know, that is not someone that's got a drug problem or an alcohol problem or severe mental illness. This is just an older lady that doesn't have familial supports maybe in the area mm -hmm. or at all. Maybe she doesn't have any kids, but she's homeless. Mm. Um, and that causes a lot of down the line health consequences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we work with someone like that, we figure out, okay, what other benefits do you maybe have as a result of your situation that we can help plug you into or help integrate into the whole program so that you can get a stable roof over your head. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's a really, that's a big topic of conversation that goes a lot of times overlooked and bucketed into the, oh, just she's homeless. Like that's a problem that we have mm -hmm. to solve for mm -hmm. and build affordable housing. Like there's, there's more nuance to this. And I think the other thing, when we talked earlier before you came on, I'm fascinated by what I would call leveraging the excess capacity. I mean, really, you're unlocking stuff that's just vacant, too. Is that correct? Like, there's just a lot of stuff that isn't you like in the right place at the right time. I mean, aren't you like really making things? Um, it's like really sustainable. You know, there's a lot of sustainability. Like often we might not need to build new. There's already plenty, but people don't even know it's available. That's 100% right. And so, so much of the effort and time and money that we've spent on the back end is building technology to help us ascertain the real-time 
inventory levels across our network of apartments uh, and homes. And what that exactly means in real life is, let's say the average apartment community is at 97% occupancy, right? Which means that they have 3% that are vacant at any given moment. Challenge here, there's a, there's a couple of challenges. Number one is the turnover rate in the average multifamily apartment building is 40% year over year. Meaning that a building might be at 97% capacity or occupancy, but it's turning over all the time and new vacancies are happening all the time. So unless you're really on top of those vacancies that are happening and doing it at national scale, you have no idea what capacity is available and what maybe, um, you know, what maybe uh, concessions are available through the property managers that make these units maybe more affordable or more accessible to people. Um, also, the process. A lot of times we'll talk to a member of the health plan and maybe they had a criminal conviction 30 years ago. And so they're in their head, like, I'm never going to apply. I'm never going to get an apartment. It's not going to happen. But because we have experts in real estate on our team and we have partners across the country that we know we can work with, we are able to get people like that applied and moved in and uh, stabilized. Uh, and so these are, there's so many little things that you don't think about as a result of this. But to your point about inventory, you have to be able to understand and your existing current allocation of inventory and you have to be able to do it using technology in real time, which is really hard for a lot of smaller you know, CBOs at the local level. They certainly can't do that nationally. It's hard for organizations that operate just within their own community of apartments. Like maybe they don't they don't have the visibility across different types of communities. So yes, the the underutilization of apartments, even if it's just three percent, three percent across thirty-three thousand buildings is millions of apartments that are available at any given moment uh, that we can place people in. So it's important. And you're all you're I know you have international um, aspirations, which is amazing, but you are currently in all 50 states today. I mean, is that correct or? Yeah. So I, we don't we don't operate necessarily in all 50 states. We're able to. Uh, we can okay. operate 50 in I think it's 42 states. It's not all 50, but it's close. And um the you know and that means that we have apartment network in those uh, areas we have support services in those areas um but yeah we're we're able to operate pretty much all over the country now it seems like you would be really good uh with channel partners too because back in my former life which i've had so many i'm still trying to figure out what i want to do when i grow up uh as a social worker and also uh, i was a special ed teacher prior to that but um the as a social worker, it was really I really enjoyed the helping with different programs. It might sound archaic, but like money follows the person, which um, very high level, uh, but really good, but hard to access. And the whole point is that if there was someone that was at a nursing home, a, a sniff, a skilled nursing facility that really wasn't well placed, that either had intellectual disability or some sort of disability. Um, that really needed to be out there in the community. There are programs to help with a housing and there was to, to get furniture and whatnot, but those programs just needed like a, like really that technology enablement that I imagine you do. So I guess I'm landing the plane now. So uh, I'm going on a long one, but the um, thing that I have, uh, you know, you talk about health plans, but there's so many dual eligibles, so many younger disabled uh, individuals that really, I imagine you guys would be just as well suited 
uh, those needs are very similar to the older 65 and plus. So how is that uh, working? Are you engaging in that as well? Yeah, it's a great question. And yes, the answer is yes. Um, as we're working with Medicaid and DSNP groups, we're seeing a variety of different population types, perinatals uh, populations and people with different developmental disability or, um, or physical disability. And so what we found was um, building this network out for older adults really was helping us understand how to build and support people that were just not fully independent. And so there's so many similarities and parallels, and we've gotten almost pulled in the direction of these different population types and being able to service them through our health plan partners. They go, oh, they go to us like, hey, you guys are seem really optimized for helping older adults, and we are, but do you think you could work with this perinatal population, or do you think you could work with a population with, you know, you name it? Um, and so, and and we've sort of crawled into that space <laughs> just mm -hmm. with full transparency to the health plans that we're working with there. Hey, you know, we're, we don't know if we're experts at this. We think we can do this well, but mm -hmm. let's start small to prove it to ourselves and to you and to members that we can serve them well. And so we're now in that process of proving it. Um, and yes, the answer is yes. Like it, mm -hmm. the, the supports and the infrastructure required to support older adults is very, very similar to that of supporting uh, other population types as well. And so as we think about the future, we sort of started this journey in Medicare Advantage and we're like, okay, let's go for older adults that you know are 65 plus that need these different supports. Um, but it's since moved to you know to include, not limited to, but include DSNP and, and Medicaid populations as well. And the whole host of different population types within Medicaid groups. Well, I don't, I wanna make sure we get, um the right um, message out there. Is there anything uh, as we've been talking that we've left out or we should uh, dive deeper into, Jake? We're kind of coming to our last few minutes. We got about five more minutes. Um, um, no, I think we covered a lot here. I think that if there's a few things that I really want to leave uh, with, you know, the audience, whoever's watching, um, it's this concept of housing is fundamental. Uh, I think we're starting to, like, I think a couple of years ago we were seeing that we were having to convince organizations that housing was an important thing to focus on. We don't have to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Everyone understands that housing is important and it's a key driver, a social driver of health. Um, now it's figuring out what that looks like. Okay, it's like, okay, we are, we agree to, your prop, to the problem that you've articulated. We agree to the solution that you're presenting. How do we actually implement? How do we get this funded? How do we get it paid for? If we're working in Medicaid, how do we get state funding from this? Is there state dollars available? Um, how, you know, if it's Medicare Advantage, how are we filing this? Is this SSBCI or is this VBID? Or there's a variety of different methods for us to, to work with a health management plan and, and ways to engage. Um, you know, looking at a demonstra 1115 demonstration waivers, there's just a lot of different ways. And so we're getting better at articulating those things and, hey, and being prescriptive. Hey, this is how we think you should, you, know, you should work with us in this market or in this state or whatever. Um, so I think that generally thinking about housing as a social driver of health is key and it's important and 2024 is the year for that to really start taking off and gaining momentum i think the second thing is how to humanize healthcare housing is the best way to in our view housing is the best way to humanize healthcare because it is so fundamental to overall whole person health well man that was this has been amazing jake jake who is the founder and ceo of upside I'm so glad you stopped here on the planet. 
on Planetary Health First, Mars Next today. It's been really a pleasure to have you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Really appreciate you having me on the show, and um, I'm excited to talk again. Yeah, absolutely. And until next time, friends, you've heard it first on Planetary Health. First, Mars Next. Have a great day.